TED Audio Collective. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I was a little bit surprised, like, can I do this? Which then I told myself, of course you can do this. Then when I started going to more senior level meetings because of this new role, I realized, like, nobody really knows what they're doing. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with designer Jamie Myrold about her problems. There's just no end of great problems to solve. (laughs) Design problems, product problems, operational problems, like everything that I just love. The interview took place in October 2018 at Adobe Max in Los Angeles in front of a live audience. But you won't hear the audience because it was recorded inside an Airstream trailer. Here's Debbie. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. 
Jamie Myrold has led large-scale design efforts at Adobe for more than 14 years, leading the company's development of next-generation design tools. Her experience goes beyond redesigning applications. Instead, she is also helping to redefine Adobe's design business. In her role, Jamie aims to inspire the next wave of design leaders by encouraging her teams to push boundaries and develop leadership skills to contribute to all aspects of business strategy and product creation. Jamie Myrold, thank you for joining me today for this very special live episode of Design Matters here at Adobe Max in Los Angeles, California. Thank you, Debbie. Jamie, I understand that every morning you sit and reflect on your day, taking stock of the good, the bad, and the ugly Mm -hmm. in an effort to do more good the following day. When and why did you start doing that? Oh, gosh, it's been for many, 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 20 plus years. Oh, wow. So this is a real practice. Oh, yeah, this is a real practice. This is something that I think has kept me sane, (laughs) one, but also has allowed me to grow in, you know, who I am as a, as a human being, but also really be much more sensitive about what I'm doing and how, where I'm putting my focus every day. And so I'm just really taking that time to clear out all of the cobwebs and really think about where am I putting my time and um, what's most important has always been, um, it's just been a practice that has enabled me to be um, a bit more conscious about my career and just about my life in general. Um, what what made you decide to do this? 20 years is a long time. I was wondering if when I was going to ask the question, you were going to say, oh, I did that for about three weeks and then stopped. <laughs> 20 years is a long time. Um, gosh, how, let me think about how it actually happened. Um, it was around the time that I met my husband and he had been a crab fisherman and um, his boat got lost at sea in the Bering Sea. And so he was, uh, they were lost for 11 days and then he was rescued. And then um, he and I met right after that. And he had just come out of sort of a long-term treatment for post-traumatic stress as a result of that. And he had a a practice of, um, you know, meditating and sitting and reflecting and really trying to understand, you know, what that life experience meant. And so I just sort of fell into that you know, with him. And so it's sort of a rhythm that we've had in our in our life and in our marriage. Did that experience of being lost at sea for so long fundamentally change how he sees the world? Oh, I think so, for sure. I mean, I think he was going down, you know, definitely one track of, you know, being a fisherman, and he was looking to become a skipper of a, of a fishing boat. And now he's in IT. <laughs> so I think, you know, when when one door is shut, um, we, we have an opportunity to either try to go back and knock on that door or take that experience and see what other doors open. And so that journey to technology for him was, was an interesting one for sure. And interesting now that you have that in common as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you grew up in Coronado, California. Mm-hmm. What kind of childhood did you have? What did your parents do? Okay, so um, originally from Chicago. Oh, originally? Yeah. Okay. So I was born in Chicago. We were there until I was 10. And then we moved to Park City, Utah. And we lived there for a few years. And Why then, Utah? Well, <clears throat> um, so, okay, this is 
kind of a long story. That's okay. okay. We have time. So um, my parents were both in the Olympics. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hold everything. <laughs> what did they do? Which Olympics? Oh, my God. So it's the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, and they were both springboard divers. And my dad won a gold medal and my mom a silver. So obviously, this has been, you know, was very instrumental in my in my upbringing, you know, to have, you know, this Olympic thing always sort of in the background. Um, though my sisters and I, like, we always swam on the swim team, but none of us became divers. Um, my parents were always very supportive of us doing our own thing. So obviously, I'm a designer. My younger sister is a lawyer. And my older sister is a beef cattle farmer and a horse breeder. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of range in the family. <laughs> yeah, so we're all over the place. But anyway, so we were living in Chicago. And um, uh, my dad was going to basically go into his, you know, take over his father's business, which was like a tool and die business, old time Chicago business. And there was a point where, and I think because of his Olympic training, and he was always like on this track, he said, I don't want to do that. And um, he had gone on a skiing trip to Park City. And it was at the time, this was probably in, let's see, very late, 70s maybe 79 ish and it was just being built up and so he saw the opportunity there and decided to move us all there and become a land developer so he sort of left the family business to go off and sort of be this independent land developer and then from there because of his you know his experience with diving in the olympics he was a commentator for um, abc's wide world of sports and would do like the cliff diving in Acapulco and the high diving at SeaWorld in San Diego. And so there was a time when um, he went to San Diego to do the commentary for the high diving and he went to Coronado and it was sort of in the same, you know, place that Park City was, you know, a few years ago. And he said, okay, we're going to, we're going to move to Coronado. So we moved there. So I was in Coronado from eighth grade through graduating high school. And I mean, have you been to Coronado? I have not. Okay. So let's see. The biggest landmark there is the Hotel Del Coronado, which some people may recognize. Anyway, big old, beautiful hotel, beautiful beach. It's just like the most idyllic growing up, but also very sheltered. You know, I left San Diego, came to LA to go to school. I went to Otis Art Institute. You know, that was a whole new thing, like for me to be in a, a city. And then we eventually you know, I eventually moved to San Francisco. And so I look back on living in San Diego or in Coronado as it was a very sheltered growing up. And I'm um, glad to have had the experience, but I'm also, you know, happy to have other experience to see a more diverse, you know, set of people. You've said that you were always a maker from childhood mm -hmm. through art college and into adulthood. You were always busy producing something with your hands. Yeah. What kinds of things were you making? Or are you making? So, yeah, much to the chagrin of my mother where I would just... <laughs> were they disappointed that you weren't more sporty? No, I don't, we never got the feeling of that. Um, you know, sports was always a thing. You know, I always swam. I played soccer. I played tennis. We were all always very active and, and physical. But, you know, going... I think they were so done with it. They were sort of happy that <laughs> we didn't. But, um, you know, what, when I was a kid, I was always, um, you know, just 
collecting. I was a collector of things. What kinds of things? Just, you know, little boxes and sticks and um, rocks and um, anything. Like, just, I was a collector of stuff. And I would, you know, keep it in my room. And then um, I would just start making stuff out of it. And, you know, my mom was always sort of bringing me art supplies, too, because that's the thing that sort of kept me kept me going. Um, and then, you know, I was, yeah, I don't know how old I was. I might've been six and she enrolled me in an art class at, in the sort of local community center in, um, Hinsdale where, where I was living in Chicago. And, um, it was like a, a class with other kids my age. And the, after the first class, the teacher said, um, you know, I really think she should go upstairs to the drawing and painting class with the adults. And wow. so, how old were you? I was like six or seven. Wow. I was little. And so, like, this was like amazing to me because one, you know, I get to go and, you know, do something that I love to do. And so, and I got to get an easel and I got to get like all of the paints and charcoals and colors. And there's um, nothing like art supplies. I know. Nothing, I know. Nothing. I had my art box and I just loved every aspect of it. And so that's where I really learned how to um, sort of draw and, and, and see composition and um, was able to be a part of critiques with, you know, adults, adults when, when I... <laughs> So I think that was sort of that really rooted me in um, always, always creating. Um, and then when I got into um, art school, and, and it was really only because of my art teacher in high school, because I wasn't a great student, maybe, you know, A, B, C's. And both of my sisters were like straight A students. And when my older, my older sister and I are only 11 months apart. And so when she started doing the whole college thing, I started thinking about, oh, crap, like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do in college? I have no idea. And so I started talking to my art teacher and she said, you know, there's this program at Otis in the summer that um, is a life drawing class and I want to recommend you for it. And so... Um, this was the summer between my junior and senior year. I took the train up to L.A., um, went to Otis. I had my, you know, all my supplies again and got to sit in and do this life drawing class, which, again, was just like, oh, my God, like, this is what I need to be doing. And the drawings that and paintings and stuff that we did in that class is what enabled me to have a portfolio that I then, you know, presented at Otis. And that's sort of how I got into, you know, going to art school, which was great. At that time, were you looking to be a fine artist? Or I know you've got a BA in communication design. Yeah, when I didn't did you... know what I was going to do. So the first year, you know, foundation is really the time where you figure it out. So through that, I chose the communication design and illustration track, which, you know, I figured I'll become a graphic designer. That seems like the right thing to do for me. But I ended up really focusing in on letterpress and handmade books and telling narrative and using my illustration. So I did sort of the whole end to end. And I loved that. Like I, I'm not a great graphic. I mean, I am a good graphic designer, but I like to get messy. My process is really about what comes out, not what I see in my head, because what I see in my head is never what comes out the other end. <laughs> and so I love that process. And with letterpress and binding and um, creating the, 
books. It was, you know, the narrative, the illustration, but also this physical sort of 3D object that I was creating. So my books ended up being fairly sculptural in nature. Anyway, so I did that. And when I graduated, that's what I wanted to continue doing, which I did for quite some time until I met my husband. And after, you know, so he recovered and he was better and started working on computers himself. I had a letterpress in our living room. <laughs> Do you still? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I wish I did, but um, I don't. Um, but he did come to me one day and he said, you know, why don't you try using the computer to, you know, do your artwork versus having this gigantic thing in our living room? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I'm not, I don't want to do that. But anyway, he went, he bought me one. And I ended up, you know, teaching myself how to use it. So I used photo, learned Photoshop, learned Illustrator. I taught myself HTML. And then I really started blending sort of my letterpress work with this digital. And it was good. I really liked it. And um, then, you know, we were in San Francisco. This is like 1993. It's the dot-com boom. Yeah. Um, I was working a retail job while I was doing my letterpress. And... He, my husband ended up getting a job at Pacific Bell, and then he, you know, again came to me and said, you know, there's a position for a webmaster. And I'm like, what the, you know, what the heck? Sounds <laughs> impressive. Sounds impressive. Like, sounds like something I could do. So anyway, I applied for that, got that job, and it, in doing that job, I took care of two of the intranet websites at Pacific Bell, and um, I was really able to hone my skill in, um, you know, HTML and sort of designing in code and um, creating, you know, graphical elements and stuff in Photoshop and in Illustrator and sort of blending that all together. And I just went on from there. Now, you say this as if it's just perfectly natural to teach yourself <laughs> these things. I have been trying for decades. Um, I read that your first exposure to design software was Photoshop, and I read that you once learned that once you learned to place, mask, and layer, there was no going back. Um, so you just took to it so naturally. Well, I guess you know it wasn't that naturally. I mean, you well, taught yourself it was... all, HTML, the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I took would take classes, yeah. and, you know, at that time, Adobe had Classroom in a Book, and so I went through the whole Classroom in a Book for, um, for Photoshop, and just, you know, did all those tutorials, and really, I guess the, the concepts did come to me fairly easily, and I think that potentially that's because, you know, when I was in school, we weren't designing on a computer, and we were, you know, we were using all the different layers of the, you know, films and laying right. it out on the big camera and, you know, cutting up Letraset and putting it yeah, down. I, I did that too. I don't think that has anything <laughs> That's to do. That's not it. I mean, I'd love to say, sure, yeah. But no, I did all of that and I've yet to master any of the things that you mastered on your own like 40 years ago. Um, but after Pacific Bell, you then ha got a job, I believe it was the user of ex the director of user experience at March 1st, which became US Web, which became CKS. <laughs> and then you were an experienced designer at Ariba. Yes. So you were always, your jobs were always in the tech realm. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, like in my professional career. Yeah. yeah. I mean, other than when I was just doing my own freelance work. Um, yeah. So I started doing like uh, banner ads and microsites 
and then um, had the opportunity to when uh, um, the sort of the my March first conglomerate of things to um, work with a team that was actually building like a web app, which was quite new at that during that time. It was like 1996, and it was for um, you know uh, webcasting. Right. <laughs> so there wasn't anything at that time, but there is where I really learned that um, this. You know, digital realm is more about uh, an experience or a workflow or how someone is interacting with something versus with the microsites. It was still much more of a um, of a of a layout and sort of a visual graphical experience and much more static, or at least the things that I was working and the banner ads, of course, were were that as well. And so I kind of learned a new skill set by um, working with you know product management, product marketing, and technology folks where, you know, when I was just doing the ad stuff, it was more, you know, I was just designing. And so from there, I'm like, okay, this is what I really, like, I like doing this. And um, when March 1st started to sort of disintegrate, um, I found a job at Ariba. And that's where I really um, learned about, you know, building web-based software and designing web-based software and how to work on a, a team and how to interact with all of the different functions and to start really thinking about uh, design systems because we had sort of a suite of apps and they all looked different, but we needed to bring them together so that they were consistent um, and looked like sort of a family of things. My boss at the time, he, um, I was there for about four years, and when my boss left, he went to go to Adobe, and I loved him, and I'm like, okay, I'm going with you. <laughs> and so Teaching like my authority or star. <laughs> and so I went online and, you know, searched on the Adobe website for positions, and there happened to be one in the design department for a design lead for Common UI. So this was around the CS2 timeframe and we were, Adobe was trying to bring everything together as a suite. And I had just gone through sort of like four years of that at Ariba. So I applied and I said, this is why I should have the job. And like, I got a call instantly. And then I've been there ever since. You were part of that first big wave of the growth of the internet, the growth mm-hmm. of commerce on the internet, mm-hmm. communication of all sorts on the internet. What was it like to work at that time as a woman in technology? Yeah, I mean, the, the conversation about, you know, women wasn't happening at that time, obviously. And the, um, the teams that I worked on, I actually had women on them. Like I had... Um, but both at March 1st and then at Ariba, it was a fairly even Steven. But most of the you know people we interfaced with on the technology side were obviously male. But it wasn't something that had sort of seeped into my consciousness, I think partially because I was in this just sort of intense like learning, like I just don't know, but I want to know. That's where my focus was more on, you know, how do I actually learn all the things that I need to learn or think I need to learn. Right. Yeah. You started as a senior experience design manager, but were very from what I can understand, you were very quickly promoted to director of product design. What what kind at of, Adobe. At Adobe, yes. Yeah. Uh, within within the first year you were promoted. Yeah. So I actually started as an uh, an individual contributor as a design lead and then um, this was two thousand four and then we merged with Macromedia. And when that happened, there was, you know, a design team that was um, Adobe's centralized design UX team, which was probably about 
let's say 60 people at that time. And then there was the macromedia design team, which was a little bit smaller, but um, the culture clash that came together with those two teams was intense. But with that coming together, they asked me to become a design manager and I managed the um, consumer products at Adobe, which was Photoshop Elements, Premiere Elements. And I remember that being such a huge transition for me. One, coming from web software into, and we were still designing, you know, perpetual licensed desktop software. I had never done that before. So in that first year, I really had to learn about what does it mean to design desktop software (laughs) with really long and monolithic cycles. And then I was given the responsibility of being a design manager. So then it was like, I always had this feeling like, okay, I don't know enough to manage these people Mm. uh, because, you know, they've all been designing desktop software for, you know, many more years than me. So I I was always like feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm an imposter and I'm like pretending and, um, Do you really think you would have gotten the job if you weren't qualified? No. And so that was the yeah. other. It's like you have this balance. It's like right. you're the, the voice that tells you, you know, you're faking it. And then the voice that tells you like, no, I'm not. Like, I know what I'm doing. And I'm very capable to do this. And so this has been my, <laughs> this has been my career. And yeah, so I managed that for uh, for a couple of years. And then I was promoted into a director role. Over- and now you're... And now I'm now vice president. Now I'm vice You're president. vice president of design yeah. at Adobe. Yeah. Did you always have your sights on that kind of position, or has it been a surprise sort of journey to the top? Um, it's been a little bit of both. I remember when I first started at Adobe, the director was a woman, and I was always like, I want to, I want to do her job one day. I, I, I really want to do that job. And then you know, it wasn't like. I want to do that job. Like, I'm super ambitious. It was just like, oh, I would really love to do that job. And so when I was promoted to director, I was a little bit surprised. Like, can I do this? Which then I told myself, of course you can do this. Then when I started going to more senior level meetings because of this new role, I realized, like, nobody really knows what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was so eye-opening for me. It was, and, you know, I was mostly the only woman in a room of men. And just, you know, kind of listening. And and my style is I'm very sort of lean forward, but I'm also very, um, I only really speak when... I feel like I need to. I'm not someone who like sort of fills up the air in the room just to hear themselves talk or to, you know, feel like they have something that they're contributing. I really wait and I'm very, um, you know, sort of sensitive and conscientious about when I do sort of voice my opinion in a, in a sort of strategy meeting. So in these, you know, when I first started going to these meetings, I would sit back and I would watch and I would listen and I would say, holy man, <laughs> Nobody knows. Yeah. And that was um yeah, super it's terrifying and it's in- terrifying inspiring. <laughs> but also it's it's the process. Yeah. And and yeah. it's okay not to know. But if you pretend like you do know, like that's not okay. In my book, anyway. Yeah. 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 People that I've interviewed, I find that um, more people than not have a sense of incredulity yeah. as to how they got to where they got. Yeah. Um, but one I one thing I think I've figured out about this is that for those people that do experience 
profound imposter syndrome, their desire to be something is bigger. Yeah. And so they might still have it, but the notion of wanting more in their lives is more important and takes more precedence. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always been about the people that I work with, the products, obviously, but it's really the people and just solving problems. I'm, I'm not super, like, picky about the problems. I just like to solve problems. And developing software experiences it's you know sort of the the problem space of the tool and the thing that you're designing but it's also just sort of the organizational operational like how do we get this thing done with a bunch of different personalities and I love that piece of it as well yeah you've said that your effectiveness on your jobs is very much dependent on connecting with people yeah how how do you go about doing that what are some ways in which you are able to most effectively communicate Yeah, I mean, I think I have an inherent way of just, like, seeing where the gaps are and where the connections need to be made. And I don't know where that actually comes from. I think it may just be in my nature. Like, I was the kid on the the playground that was always, like, bringing everybody together. Like, don't leave anybody out. And sometimes now, to my my detriment, like, I want to bring everybody together, where the dinner party starts out as two and ends up being 50, because I don't want to leave anyone out. And so I think when I'm working within Adobe, I and I'm working on one project, I just see the connections across everything else. And I want to include the voices of the, you know, sort of the extended part of what we need to be doing. And I think also just my um, ability to sort of listen and be calm. And I think that, you know, going back to sort of the meditation practice and the reflection, I feel like that, you know, it's just part of who I am. I get that a lot. People say, how are you so calm? And I think it's just because I do take that time to, to calm my my inner being. Yeah. Do you seek out people on various teams that are more shy or less communicative to try to bring them out more? Absolutely. And I also kind of gravitate to like the loudest voice or the person that everybody is saying, like, I can't work with that person. Like, I love that challenge. In what way? How do you you manage through that? I tend to run in the other direction when those people are nearby. I just schedule a one-on-one with them and meet with them and talk to them about, you know, what their thoughts are and what their opinions are. And, um, and you know, we'll just start building a relationship in that way. And then once I sort of gain the trust, then I'll start putting my opinion into and start formulating things that way. But I I find that if you can really establish the trust before you wholeheartedly put your own point of view out, you can get a, a, a two-way street. Um, it might take a little bit longer, but you yeah, can you get Yeah, you need a, t- a lot of patience for that. Yeah, Jamie. you need a lot of patience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I've read that design and design-led thinking comes easily to you. And there's a lot of commentary now these days about design thinking mm-hmm. and whether it is as valuable as some people or organizations have, have thought it was. And I'm just curious as to what your thinking is about design thinking mm-hmm. uh, and and how you use it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a hard one because, I mean, design thinking is really just, a, from my perspective, is just an iterative design process where we learn 
we come together, we iterate, we prototype, you know, all of these things. And so, I mean, that's how my team just naturally works. Where we use um, design thinking or design workshops or design stretches or, um, you know, different ways to sort of introduce that iterative process and that sort of it's okay not to know and it's okay to be wrong um, is, you know, we do a lot of workshops with our uh, product management and engineering counterparts um, in Adobe. That's how we use it. It's kind of just in our DNA now. And a few years ago, it was this big buzzword, like, we got to do design thinking. Right. But it's not in our vernacular in that way anymore. But I have started working with my son's school, and they're really trying to change the way in which they approach curriculum to a more project-based curriculum. And so we went, a, a couple of folks from my team and I, we went and we um, ran a design thinking workshop, like introduce what those concepts are and talk to them about iteration and coming together as a team. And um, so ran an exercise with them and then gave them a prompt to solve. It was around, you know, how can Royce Moore School introduce more creativity into the curriculum? And so you know, we put the teachers in groups, they went off, they did their brainstorming, they did their iteration, and then they came to a presentation that they gave to each other. And it was, that was really valuable to me to be able to sort of take that process and bring it into a school and to see the teachers, you know, some of them have been at the school for 30 plus years, teaching their same curriculum. And just to see them be like, oh my goodness, like this is such a great process. And to see how they came together and came out with so many different ideas of things that they could do, it was very rewarding. You've done quite a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk to you about some of the articles that you've posted both on Medium as well as the Adobe blog. And, and all of these pieces are pretty easy for our listeners to find. Mm-hmm. One of the most <clears throat> recent challenges you've written about facing has been the way the relationship you have to Adobe's designers has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, in what way? Well, I think just design at Adobe has changed. And when I first started, it was a fairly flat organization. You know, we had one director and and maybe a couple of design managers, and then the rest were individual contributors. And so, you know, over the years, as design has become much more at the upfront, where we're looking at strategy, and we're helping with product strategy, and we're also, you know, working with engineers to solve the problems, you know, we're not just waiting for them to code things, but we're really, you know, helping them to look at what is the right architecture and what do we need to scale our applications. And and doing that and sort of scaling the team over the years, we've had to add in, we've added in more design leadership. And also, um, we've introduced design operations. So the relationship has really changed in terms of like, there's sort of the business of design like how do we how do we actually be sort of effective members of the team because at Adobe we're a centralized organization we don't report into the product teams so we really have to run our own organization so that we can be strong partners but also as I've sort of gone up the ladder in my career I've really been able to be much more of a mentor to you know younger designers and also design leaders that are coming up 
and have really been able to share my experiences of how important it is to connect with the people you're working with, no matter what their background or, you know, if you like them or not, that's not what it's about. It's really about how do you get the right sort of culture and uh, nature to a team. And I really feel like designers can bring that to the table. They're sort of the objective sort of middle ground and can have bits and pieces of all of the other skill sets in the room and, and be that sort of, you know, bridge and connector of things. Last year, you wrote a letter to the design community that stated the following. The smartphone in a typical middle schooler's shirt pocket is more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer of 1985, which at three feet tall and five feet wide was itself much smaller than its less powerful predecessor. The leaps in technology that led from one to the other were the products of a multitude of curious brains that latched onto every little development, applied imagination and expertise, and moved us all forward, one communal lurch at a time. (laughs) Now we're entering another technological sea change, and this one is going to push designers to rethink everything about the user experience and about our own processes. I'm talking, of course, about machine learning and virtual reality. Software is soon going to look and feel a lot different than it does today, and while the user population may perceive the transformation as gradual and natural, the design community knows how much work it will take to shape and package the next evolution. I love that, Jamie, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what role you have now in shaping that evolution at Adobe. Yeah, so um, I'll start with uh, sort of the machine learning and artificial intelligence aspect because I've actually been putting quite a bit of my focus there of late. We have Sensei, which is our machine learning and um, artificial intelligence platform. When I started sort of interfacing with some of our research scientists at Adobe on the sort of what does it mean? What is this going to mean for designers? What is this going to mean for the way in which we build software at Adobe? They were like coming to me and saying, we need designers to tell us what to do, you know, as they're looking at the different training data and they're looking at, you know, what should the algorithms be? They came to me and said, you know, we can't do this without you. And so I um, built a design team specifically to work on um, the Sensei platform, and we call that the Machine Intelligence Design Team. Nice. And it's made up of designers that have quite a different background to mine, like they come more from technical or computational design, where they're really looking at both the coding of a thing and then and also just like looking at what is the potential of the technology when we're looking at creative fields so there's you know a few things that we're looking at one is you know how do we design these algorithms like what do they need to do so that's one aspect of it which isn't pixels right right but it's also really hard do designers have to have do the designers you're working with have a different background are they more engineering focused or are they polymaths they're yeah they're more a little more engineering focused or they have a um they're they're very much a, a blend mm-hmm. of of different things this whole new hybrid of designer and yeah. evolving yeah 
they're definitely not visually bent. That's not their skill set. They're more, you know, around this deep thinking of how to tie the technology to something that's going to be an interface or something that's going to be content. And it it ends up being, in, in some regards, like artists as well that are trying to figure out how to do sort of computational design, design that's very supported by code, and they don't have the tools to make the thing that they want to make. And so they have to make the tool so that they can make the thing. (laughs) So it doesn't seem like the design world is really going to be obsolete as we get more and more into computers making decisions for us. No, no. I think it's going to open up yet another set of skills that designers that are bent that way will learn. And then for the new tooling and for, you know, what we can do to make more intelligent interfaces, it's only going to help make designers be more productive and sort of take more menial tasks out of their way so that they can really be putting um, all of their time and energy into the deep creative thinking and, you know, deep creation of things. What about movement and sound? What is Adobe doing in those areas? So we're looking, I mean, when it comes to, you know, VR or AR in particular, that's more spatial, like looking at what is the type of content we're going to want to be projecting out into the world or how do we actually make that technology relevant (laughs) and how do we help brands to really think far enough out to, you know, what types of content might they want to be creating with that? How do they want to be talking to their customers with that? How do you do that? How do you work with them to determine what might be happening two, three, five, ten years into the future? I mean, again, it's just a lot of brainstorming and talking, what ifs, and let's try, yeah, and and let's try this and let's try that. And it's this really great era of we don't have the tools. We're not quite sure what the content is going to be. So there's, I feel like there's going to be this sort of back and forth of the tool moves forward. Somebody has some great idea with content, the tool moves forward. And so, yeah, it's pretty exciting. This is a question you've posed that I'd like to get your opinion okay. on. You state, designers used to design a web page and an engineer would build it. Mm-hmm. Then dynamic design came along and there was more variability, but the experience was still pretty static. With machine learning, a software application can not only ingest data, but can act upon the results, delivering a personalized experience that changes to meet every user's needs on the fly. So, Jamie, the question that you pose that I'd love to get your insight on is this. A software package with one million users may generate a different interface for each one of them. So how can a designer accommodate that fluidity? two-part question. And when a software application resides in the virtual world, will it even have an interface at all? Um, Yeah, so for the first question, it's really interesting. And one of the things that we've been focusing on is this notion of creative intent. We've traditionally been focused on a creative pro and someone who knows our tools or has the gumption to learn them or learns them in school and then uses them every day in their in their work so they get them. But we have this whole other class of users that want to be creative and they may not know what tool to start with. They may not even know exactly what they want to create or what is possible. So with the machine learning and, and data, we can start to learn and understand their intent. And the more we can understand that intent, the more we can serve up the appropriate thing at the appropriate time, whether that's learn content 
or the right application or the right piece of inspiration. It's really going to enable us to speak the language of the individual and not try to have a one-size-fits-all. Right. Which is super exciting. It's it's really exciting and daunting and barely feels possible. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's all learning, mm-hmm. you know? I don't want to say we're, like, completely in the dark, but, I mean, it's like, how do you get the signals what are those signals? Is this the right signal? So it's a lot of iteration, testing, trying, um, experimenting, and learning. It yeah. feels very blurry still. Yeah. As I'm trying to get wrap my head around yeah. it. And you you go on to say that right now the problem that you're trying to solve is is centered more around abstract inputs. Yeah. Where users don't even know they're giving the machine information. And this was really fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, you go on to state that we're already experiencing this if we use Facebook. Facebook system learns who you interact with, what pages you like, which ads you respond to. The more the system learns about you, the more it can learn about you. Yeah. So it offers you slightly different choices to decide what to offer you next and you're constantly being a b tested and you probably don't even notice yes that was terrifying yeah. as well and i'm wondering how do you feel about this access to our information yeah this one um is a big one for me um and especially as we're you know looking at sensei and the sensei platform and this notion of you know helping users be more productive or being sort of an assistant to their creativity like what does that mean like how much do we make it very obvious like presence in the ui or in the experience is a big question for me right now it's like Do you have sort of a clippy experience where you're very obvious and you're talking to this and asking for help or do you completely hide it? And it's just sort of in the DNA of the the product. Um, That feels more unsafe somehow. Yeah. So this whole notion of privacy and security and being safe and also not hiding anything from the user, but also we're not, you know, like we don't know who you are. We're not collecting personal data by any stretch of anyone's imagination. Yeah, I've never felt like Adobe was seeking more information from me than they needed. Yeah, but I think it's this blend of being transparent and then also getting it right. Mm -hmm. So if it's delighting you and if it's actually helping you, I think that feels more safe than if it it feels icky. Yeah. Yeah. As As one of the most senior women in design and technology, Uh, You've also written quite a lot about the arc of a designer's career, Mm. Um, and you've said that uh, a job is just a job, but a career is a design problem. (laughs) (laughs) And like people in any discipline, designers tend to fall into a career path. Uh, If your first job is with a software company, your next one is likely to be as well. If you start with a job at a nonprofit, you stay in the nonprofit sector. Unless you make deliberate career decisions, your vertical may decide it for you. Mm-hmm. So any advice for designers that are looking to move more into that engineering realm or any other part of the discipline in an effort to help them make better, more deliberate decisions about how they can go further next? Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest piece of advice is just don't be afraid. If you're in one place, but you want to be in this other place, and it feels like that journey or that trajectory is just too wildly far out I would say go talk to people that are doing that job and tell them you want to do that job and learn how they got that job and then 
I think just by having a conversation, it, it will open many doors. I mean, there was a woman at Adobe who is was an engineering manager, but she went to design school, but ended up in technology. And she wanted to get back to design. And she basically just set a meeting with me and told me about her path and her career path. So she just reached out to you and she you were willing to out. sit with her. Yeah. And now she's on my team. Wow. <laughs> now, you, you, one of your recommendations is to ask questions yes. shamelessly. Yes. And so many people are afraid to ask questions because they feel they'll seem dumb or, or opportunistic. Um, what advice would you have for people who want to ask better questions or to take that step and call someone that might be able to help them? Yeah. Aside from just do it, which I know is an easy thing to yeah. say, but really, really hard to do. I think that connecting and like having a mentor and just like having a network of people that... Um, Sort of like a board of directors. Yeah, kind almost. of like a board of directors, but people that you know you reach out to, and I think you know taking the opportunity to do that, and you know, like if you or run into someone in the cafe at work, don't put your head down and walk the other direction. Like say hello, and I mean, I think for me, it's all about the human connection and knowing that no question is a dumb question. I know that it's cliche and everybody says it, but really, it's like ask questions and find someone and it could be someone that you're really comfortable with just to, you know, but say the things that are going on in your head, I think is, is, is a thing to do. Yesterday I moderated a panel with, uh, design leaders at Google and Dropbox. Um, and I was struck by one of the comments that one of the panelists made, which was to actually prepare questions in advance for the people you do want to speak to yeah. that you might actually bump into. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was That's really, really smart. Yeah. <laughs> like, get, just have them ready. Yeah. Relentlessly prepare. And I know that you're a big preparer as but well. That is, that is a great, great piece of advice because then, I mean, again, like sitting and reflecting, what are the questions that you have? What are the things that you want to do? What is important to you? What are sort of your non-negotiables? And who are the people that can help you get there? Another very big enthusiastic part of what you like to do <laughs> is is talk about how designers can make better presentations. And this is one of my big evangelizing mm. things on my on my bucket list to make every designer a better presenter because I think presentation skills are the single most important skill for a designer to master after yeah. design and maybe equal to design if we can't communicate about our ideas then nobody's going to care about our ideas. Exactly. Um, I think designers are woefully, woefully underprepared for this part of their job. Yeah. I mean, I think designers are actually more underprepared for this part of their job than almost any other creative discipline that mm -hmm. I've come across. And I, I, I'm, st I'm still trying to find out why. I know. It's really interesting because you would think that <laughs> as designers, we would be really good at putting together a narrative and telling a story. But what I think the crux of it is, is that they're, you know, younger designers or um, designers earlier in their career that may be partnering with a product manager or an engineer to put together a presentation. I think that they feel like they're sort of the presentation jockey, like they're just the one that is sort of putting it together and making it look good. And they forget about their own point of view and what's being presented. And so... I think that's one challenge. And I think the other challenge is 
designers are sometimes shy. They like to be at their desk and creating and not putting themselves out there. And so in my team, it's one of the things that we focus a lot on in terms of giving all of the designers opportunities to, you know, present at all hands or present to each other. Um, We brought um, a company in in San Francisco called Speechless to do improv training Mm, with them. That's great. And so... Toastmasters is also great for, for designers. Yeah. So I think, you know, being able to not only have sort of the gumption to present in front of an audience, but having a strong point of view, being able to um, articulate that point of view in a narrative form, and then, you know, visualize it. I think also one of the things that I learned from reading about your style of presenting and and the advice that you've given others is to really know the goal. Yeah. What do you want to achieve in that meeting? What kind of uh, result do you want to come out with? And I think that that helps when you're trying to plan for next steps, when you actually go in with a very specific outcome that you would like to foresee. Yeah. I took a um, presentation class when I first started Adobe, which was called Speaking to the Big Dogs, Mm. (laughs) which I got a lot of good skills from that, which is like, be very, you know, get to the point. Don't tell me too much. And just, you know, what do you need? So it's, you know, there's different types of presentations. And so I think, again, yeah, understanding the goal and what, where you're try- what you're trying to communicate is super important. The last thing I want to ask you about your writing is about your recommendation that you suggest that designers need to become their company's design evangelist, mm-hmm. even if the company hates design. <laughs> <laughs> so assuming that a designer is working in a company that hates design, how can they become a design evangelist in that kind of an environment? Yeah, I think it's um, finding opportunities to either, you know, run workshops to bring people together to, you know, sort of solve a problem in in a design thinking sort of way. I think it's um, communicating and presenting to their boss the importance of design. I think also in this article, I said, though, at some point, if you're not making any traction, that may not be the right company and to, to move on. But I feel like it is part of the designer's job to always be up-leveling design, shouting at the rooftops about design. I wish we didn't have to, but we do. We we continually have to fight for what our skill brings to the table and also be confident and have a strong point of view and be passionate about having your voice in the rooms where you're, you're present. Yeah. I mean, we, I think we are getting more seats at more tables, but my concern now is that we don't have enough to say when we're at the table. Which is the problem. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a dialogue I have with my team. It's like, don't come crying to me that you're not invited to the table. If you don't have something to give because right. if you're being invited they're you they want your voice right right and so have that point of view i also find that for those that are in environments where they're struggling because there might be a resistance to design yeah. or what design can do is that's when we can have the most impact yeah and and that's the one thing i like about working in more dysfunctional environments is because you have an impact to change things in the way that you envision they could absolutely. be changed absolutely. and i think that gives us an opportunity to make a difference absolutely Jamie, my last question for you today is this. You've been at Adobe for nearly 15 years now and seem to have no intention of slowing down. (laughs) Um, What's kept you at Adobe for this long and what do you hope to be able to do in the next stage of your tenure? 
Yeah, I think the thing that's so great about Adobe is that we are continually, as a company, pushing forward and um, never sort of resting on our laurels. I think that any time that I start getting a little itchy or want to do something else, then the company goes in another direction. And so, you know, we spent a number of years sort of transitioning the business model to subscription. And now it's all about the product. And it's all about how do we reach this next level of creative people wanting to be creative. There's just no end of great problems to solve. (laughs) Design problems, product problems, operational problems, like everything that I just love. And, you know, the opportunity to, you know, build the machine intelligence design team. I've introduced international design focus this year, an inclusive design focus. So it's just like, as products and as experiences in this world continue to change and grow, it's just like, it's just one more thing. And I have the opportunity to um, have some impact there. And so looking, you know, forward, you know, next five, 10 years, if I'm still at Adobe, it would be to continue to, you know, scale design and really um, have that be the driving force of everything we do at Adobe. Jamie Milo, thank you so much for sharing so much about your career, for being such a powerful leader and for being on this very special episode of Design Matters today. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's been Thank great to you. be here. Thank you so much. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melvin, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.